This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Being a pilot is about passion and dedication. The early mornings, hours invested, constantly learning procedures and details, there's a lot to do. Membership in AOPA makes doing the groundwork easier so you can get into the sky. With the power of thousands of pilots united behind you, get access to exclusive resources, practical benefits, and fierce advocacy that helps enhance and protect your freedom to fly. Join us. Visit aopa.org membership or give us a call at 800-872-2672. Why am I not climbing? And I'm looking around doing my cross checks. And in the meantime, I'm looking out the windscreen of the airplane and I can see where I'm gonna impact the ground. And I'm getting closer and closer. I'm checking carburetor heat, I'm checking all of these things and I can't for the life of me figure out what's going on. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is general aviation pilot, Carl Hancock. You may know him from his YouTube channel, Fly With The Guys. Carl's had his license since 2018. He's accumulated about 250 total hours and he's currently undergoing IFR training. He's gonna share a story with us today about flying a Cherokee 140 in Arizona when density altitude kind of caught up with him. Carl, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Hey, thank you for having me on here. Great. So it's nice to chat with you. You've got a fun YouTube channel that we enjoy watching and appreciate the content you put out for general aviation. And today you've got one where we can all have a couple lessons learned from flying your Cherokee 140. So share your story with us. Yeah, absolutely. So this all started out on a Monday morning. My kids didn't have school that day. And so they're like, Dad, we want to go flying. And obviously, they've been asking this multiple times over the past couple of weeks. And with the stars aligning, we decided to go ahead and make a trip to Payson, Arizona in the Cherokee 140. Now, I've only been flying this airplane for, I want to say, about 10 hours at this point and felt like I had a pretty good handle on the aircraft. My landings were good. And so I felt comfortable taking my three kids with me. OK. Actually, I have four, but, you know, there's not that many seats. <laughs> and you were you were coming out of Deer Valley. So going from Deer Valley to uh, Payson, uh, K Papa Alpha November. Correct. Was your route of flight. Okay. Yeah. And that's just a quick 50 nautical mile flight up there. Great place to go have breakfast. And so it's kind of a destination my kids like to go to. And what time of year are we talking about? Um, this is going to be September. So, September. Okay. Yeah. Still a little warm here inside of Phoenix and the north 
country, you know, high country, sorry, is uh, still has density altitude problems at that point. So, you know, all things that we're taking into consideration on this flight. But the day was nice and calm at both airports, uh, according to all of my research before I left. And so we all climbed inside of the plane and departed. And the flight over there, no big problems. And uh, there's a large ridge when we're coming up and you can finally see the airport. And uh, that's when I go ahead and get all of my weather information. And it's basically 10 miles out once you hit that ridge. So at Cherokee 140, and you mentioned you have you and three of your children in it. Yeah. I used to own a Cherokee 140. I bought one to teach my son to fly. Just fantastic airplanes. And mine was like yours. I think you mentioned you had the upgrade to the 160 horsepower engine. Correct. Which is a great upgrade for that platform. Mm -hmm. And so but I think of a Cherokee 140 though it's one of those airplanes that kind of helps make the statement that just because there's four seats in it doesn't mean you can carry four people. But those seats are really, and I've always thought this, the two seats in the back really could only be used for small children. Correct. And that sounds like kind of what you were using it for. So what were like the, the ages of your children? Yeah, so in the Cherokee 140, um, between all of my kids, maybe 200 pounds tops. Um, in the back, I had my two daughters, are seven and nine years old. And in the passenger seat up front was my son who is 12 years old. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of the configuration there. Yeah. And so in the wings, 18 gallons on each side, uh, just up to the tab. So we weren't fully weighted inside of that airplane. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know if you thought of it the same way, but I just thought that y you wouldn't put two adults in the back of a Cherokee 140. I, oh, you know, heavens it, no. It just one, that it wouldn't be comfortable. But you'd be overgrossed at that point. It was really, those two seats are really, if you use them, it's designed for just what you had there, small small children. Exactly. And and so it made sense inside of this situation to be putting them back there. So Okay, great. So you load the family up. You're going to go have a fun day up at Payson. And I'm looking on ForeFlight, and it looks like there is a pretty big ridge in your way that you get goes up to about 7,900 at the peak, but maybe you can go either side of it, you know, as low as 6,000 or so to get over it. Is that, is that about, did you have to navigate that a little bit? Oh yeah. I've been to Payson so many times. Don't even use GPS anymore. Okay. Just, yeah. <laughs> you see the peaks of those mountains you're talking about and you point the nose towards them. And then as you're getting closer, yeah, you go to the uh, north or south of that ridge and you're able to drop down to a much lower altitude. Got it. Um, okay. But yeah, typically I, I climb between eight and 9,000 feet somewhere in there and fly over those ridges uh, to the north or south. Okay. So you're coming inbound, you get the ATIS and uh, pick the field up in sight and pick it up from there. I'm going to talk a little bit about the airport for just a second because it makes sense inside of the situation. Okay. So Payson Airport is kind of unique in the fact that if you were to take a look at it from up above, you notice that the runway in the middle actually dips down. And so it kind of makes this disc shape. So if you're taking off from Payson Airport on runway 24 and headed back towards Phoenix, you kind of get enough speed going downhill and then you start climbing out as the runway comes uphill. And this always, always in general aviation aircraft, because you don't have that climb performance, creates this optical illusion of you're not climbing. As the ground comes up, it's almost as if you're climbing at that exact same rate. So again, optical illusion, and it can kind of confuse you, which kind of played a lot into the incident that I had here. Okay. So 
As we're coming inbound, we are on the downwind approach to this. And having checked the weather earlier, it said that variable winds at four knots. So Payson Airport has a calm wind runway of two four. So we are gonna go and line up for that runway. We're coming in, everything is great on the approach. Everything's feeling good, not feeling any winds, nothing's going on. And then at about 100 feet off the runway, things start going sideways. We got pushed uh, to the right side of the runway. Wind got on top of the wing and pushed the wing over. And I'm in full configuration here for landing. And so I'm going slow, and I know that this is not a good situation to be in. So nose down just a little bit and do that correction and realize this far off the ground, I am not stabilized. I've been pushed off the runway, and it is now time to do a go-around. And uh, to be honest, I haven't had to do a lot of go-arounds inside of my flying experience. Mm -hmm. So go back to a little bit of my training, give that thing full throttle. We level off gain that airspeed, and we're cruising down the center line of the runway now. And that optical illusion I was talking about is now coming into play. And that is what's in my mind. We're not, I feel like we're not climbing normal because we're climbing with the, the grade of the ground, right? Okay. Well, as this is happening, I'm slowly starting to realize, hey, I'm not climbing with the grade of this ground. Mm. Then that's when I hear my stall warning horn go off for the first time. And I didn't realize that I had been pulling back on the yoke trying to gain altitude like I was. And I'm like, this, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. So I'm starting to look around the airplane. I'm doing the same checks that I've always done. And I can't seem for the life of me to figure out why we're not climbing. And I had remember when we're coming in, I said the density altitude was about 7,000 feet that day. And I had done the calculations in my head thinking, okay, Flagstaff, Arizona, 7,000 feet. I can take off there with this load and this fuel. There's enough performance. This isn't a problem. So why am I not climbing? And I'm looking around, doing my cross checks. And in the meantime, I'm looking out the windscreen of the airplane and I can see where I'm going to impact the ground. Hmm. And I'm still high enough that I'm like, okay, this isn't a big deal. Not yet. And I can't for the life of me figure out what's going on. And I'm checking carburetor heat. I'm checking all of these things and I'm getting closer and closer. Eventually the runway is gone. Yeah. And all I see out in front of me are trees and rooftops because there's a small community of aircraft out there. And it was at that moment, as I'm getting closer and closer, stall warning horn continues to go off because I'm trying, but every time I hear it, I nose over. And that is so uncomfortable when you're realizing how close you're getting to the ground. Mm -hmm. And eventually I'm about, I want to say 20 feet off the tops of the trees. Mm. And, and I finally look and in the Cherokee 140, the flaps are like a parking brake inside of a car. And there, there's the pole sticking straight up. I forgot to retract my flaps. Mm. Mm. We weren't climbing. <laughs> of that yeah instinctively i uh dumped them all the way to the floor so i retracted 100 percent flaps uh oh um yeah this close and thankfully the engine everything because i was kind of in a straight level flight moment i did not nose over we we just started gaining airspeed immediately mm. and slowly very slowly we started pulling away from the treetops and I can tell you that was the scariest 
closest call I've ever had in my life. And shortly after starting to gain that altitude, there was another pilot at the end of the runway and he had been seeing what was going on. And he called over the radio and asked if I was okay. And I was uh, at that moment frazzled yeah. and was able to reply, yes, we're gaining altitude now. We're going to be okay. Yeah. Okay. Now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, I, I can imagine that uh, the harrowing feeling there where you've run out of runway. And if you're only 20 feet or so above rooftops and trees that are headed your way, I'm sure you're beginning to think about where am I going to put this plane? That was going through my head. And the problem was, is I was so low, treetops and houses, you can't see. There's nowhere to look to see. Mm. You can't see yeah. what's on the ground at this point. You can't see if there's a road or something that you can try to divert to. And honestly, I was at a make or break point when I found the flaps like that. Yeah. And I you know, continue to play the what ifs that were going through my mind at that moment. What would be the next step if I didn't see that? And mm -hmm. I tell myself now, it's like, well, I probably would have done a, a slow bank turn to the right, try to figure something out. But thankfully, we were able to see that flaps and, and make that decision. But uh, there's a couple of important things that I realized while going through it is that, you know, in that moment, I can see why there are accidents that you get focused on what's happening. Mm -hmm. You get focused on what's going on. And you're even though you're trying to correct it, there's that traumatizing moment where you're like, this could end badly. And it is incredibly distracting mm -hmm. and to maintain your cool and continue to figure out what's going on is paramount and in my situation you know i've had a lot of time to reflect and i know that i've said that uh, the stall warning horn was going off repeatedly i wasn't pulling back i knew i wasn't trying to pull back on the yoke because i knew what that meant mm -hmm. but i think it was the tense nature of that moment i was tensing and accidentally pulling back and not realizing it. Well, that and I think the visual of that ground coming up to you would have been hard to resist not pulling back against that. So your natural reaction without even thinking about it would have been to continue some slight back pressure on that yoke. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what's helpful here is you had that stall warning horn that you probably felt you were slow, but when that stall warning horn went off, you went like, whoa, you know, that, hang on a second. I'm slower than I realized here, maybe. Did that really get your attention when that happened? That's really what started it all. Mm -hmm. And then go, as we're going down and it goes off a handful more times, like it's hard because you're like, I'm this close to the ground and I need to nose over. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a comfortable feeling. Yeah. Those things can be so helpful there, right? You know, it's the kind of thing you never want to rely on that. But when it's there in the moment helping you realize one, it got your attention, and two, it's now helpful for you to realize that you're kind of playing in that stall horn and realizing when it goes off, you, you've got nothing else there. That's it. That's your limit. Yeah. And so being able to play that maybe provided you some help. So that stall horn became a really helpful tool for you there, it sounds like. Absolutely. And oddly enough, I think it was my second flight on that plane during my pre-flight, I found out that it wasn't working. And so I contacted the, the owner of the airplane and he's all like, okay, we'll get it fixed. And sure enough, the next time I came out there, it was fixed. And I could tell it was fixed because it was a different switch. The original wow. one was painted white like the plane. 
This one is yellow. <laughs> you know, I don't want to gloss over that. That could have made all the difference in this scenario. Absolutely. It, it could have ended totally differently. That one, you noticed it and took the time to write it up, to call the owner and, and you know, make the uh, squawk about it. And then secondly, he took the time to get it fixed. And what a difference this could have been if that hadn't have been done. Such a small thing that made such a big difference here. It absolutely did, because without that stall warning horn, I wouldn't have caught myself and could have been inside of a uh, stall spin situation. And, you know, that's scary to think about, but I'm very, very thankful for the stall warning horn being functional and being a huge contributor to be able to get out of this. You know, another thing that was helpful to you here is a technique that I learned early on is whenever something isn't going right in your cockpit. And it goes everything from your avionics pointing to a weird place and it just doesn't seem right. It seems like it's broken, your autopilot, or in this case, you know, the the airplane not flying like you expect it to. Mm -hmm. The first question we should ask ourselves is, okay, what am I screwing up? Because the chances are it is something. Our planes are incredibly reliable. Mm -hmm. So the chances are it is something that we've screwed up, right, that we have forgot to set or overlooked or whatever. And I'm sure, you know, if we were in that cockpit with you, you were pushing that throttle forward. There's probably a little indention in your dash where you were <laughs> making sure that throttle was full forward, getting everything you have, probably checking your mixture to make sure you had that leaned and getting every inch of RPM, every little fraction of power you could get from that because you're not full rich, you're at high density altitude. So managing that mixture, really important for your optimum power setting. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine being in your cockpit, seeing you push that, tweaking that mixture, thinking, what is going on here? Why am I not getting this power? And somehow, you know, you were overlooking the flaps, but you didn't give up, you stayed with it. You kept going through that something isn't right. I've missed something here. And you finally picked it up. Yeah. And, you know, going back and thinking about that, one part that I missed from the story is that when I had put uh, pulled the flaps all the way back up, it was that point where the five C's of a go around, you know, hit my head. So the cooling portion of that is to go full rich. And I've always done my touch and goes or takeoffs and landings at a low altitude airport in Phoenix. So I, during the situation, I instinctively also put my mixture to full rich. Mm. Should not have done that. There was a lot of things at play here that I was a very lucky and blessed person to get myself and my family alive out of this situation. So remind us the five C's of the go around. Talk uh, through that. Cram, climb, clean, cool, and then call. So cramming mean throw everything to the firewall. Climb, make sure that you're inside of a climbing state. Clean up the aircraft. So you start retracting your flaps. And those first three things go all together, all at once, typically. Cool, and that's, this is more for larger engines, but in my situation, it was to make sure that we're cooling off the engine and have the best performance. So make sure the carburetor heats off, but also make sure that the um, mixture is full rich and then call. That's the last thing you do is call air traffic control and let them know that you're doing your go around. Yeah, interesting. That's a, I've not heard of that before. That's a good one. The cram one, like so much in aviation, takes a little bit of thought, though, right? Cram, if you're at sea level, sure. Cram everything, you know, throttle, prop, uh, mixture, full forward. But if you're at high density altitude or you're flying in the backcountry or in the mountains, eh, you can't really climb that mixture. That could put you in real trouble. 
And that's one of my biggest takeaways from this whole situation. And in talking with my instructors, other instructor friends of mine and things, I've come to the conclusion that my before landing checklist, even though it's there and it's the one that's listed in almost every single checklist, I need to put a personal item on there. And inside of all of my instrument rating training that I've been doing right now, we always brief the approach. Mm-hmm. Well, why am I not briefing my approach for my before landing checklist? Mm-hmm. And I also need to think about that approach because, again, I I fly at low DA airports, low altitude airports, and high. I need to make sure that I'm talking through in that briefing, this is a high-density altitude airport. If I need to do a go-around, I need to make sure that I'm not touching my mixture because it's already set as I've been coming in. It is set for the best performance for where I'm at. Don't touch it. So, yeah, so I needed to make that a part of my briefing as I'm coming in, and it would have made this situation a whole lot better uh, because I would have remembered it. Yeah. And let's talk about flap settings in a Cherokee 140. You'll have to remind me. I don't remember how many different settings there are in flaps, but I know there's at least two, right? There's probably 10 degrees and 40 degrees or some variation of that. Uh, There's three. Okay. Uh, So you you pull it up, it clicks once, and I'll be honest, I don't remember what they are. I just learned how to use them. Um, So there's the first one, the second, and then the full flaps for uh, for landing. And during a go around, I believe you're supposed to drop that to that first notch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and I'm curious, do you typically land your Cherokee 140 with full flaps? Is that your typical landing? Yeah, that's what I, my typical landing inside of this airplane. Okay. Even, even if you're heavyweight and high density altitude, you'll come in and you'll have, you'll, you'll land with full flaps. Um, again, only 10 hours inside of this aircraft. And so yeah. I'm still kind of getting the hang of some of those. And all I've really done is that full flaps landing. And I haven't had any issues outside of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know that there's any one technique better than the other. Having flown a lot of airplanes that can be heavy, like Bonanzas and Navions, when you get in high density altitude, you're at high gross weight. I'm very cautious about ever going full flaps. Now, sometimes you need it, you know, because you want to be on speed. You don't want to overrun the runway. But most of the time for these airplanes, you have plenty of runway, 3,000 feet, plenty. Mm -hmm. So I I always factor in whether or not I'm going to need to go around because a go around when you have full flaps, high density altitude, high gross weight is a handful, even in a Cherokee 140, because you're not going to have a lot of excess power. Yes. And you're going to have a lot of trim that you're going to have to fight off in this go around. Mm -hmm. So it's just one of those things that I think about when I'm coming in to land at a situation where you and where I'm, you weren't at really that high a gross weight. But if I'm at high gross weight and I'm at high density altitude, I think twice about, do I really want full flaps on this landing? Do I really need it? And I feel like it just gives me a bigger safety buffer and more options. Yeah on the backside if I had to go around. So just something to consider. Yeah. And, you know, in retrospect, thinking a lot about this incident, realize the majority of my time is in a 172 and is a November model. And we have 40 degrees of flaps inside of that one, but I've always typically just used 30 because I found that to be a better situation for how I'm flying the airplane. And I believe after that model, they got rid of the 40 degrees of flaps anyways and only allowed it to go to 30. But I realized, because thinking back through everything that was happening inside the cockpit, I wasn't looking in the right place for the flaps Mm -hmm. because I kept, and I realized I started my scan over there where the flaps are in a 172. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. 
And then I worked my flow across all the gauges and instruments and settings and everything to make sure that everything was normal. And because I'm more new to this aircraft, my scan should have started in my in the between the seats, which is where that mm. flat bar mm. is. Yeah. So it, you know, it's just that training, the complacence that you get flying the same aircraft for so long and then switching to a new one. There's a period of time before you get used to that airplane and its flows and how it should work. Yeah, that illustrates that whole dynamic of in a crisis, your mind is going to fall back to where it's comfortable, where your training is, and what it's used to. And it was more used to that setting being in a 172. Yes. So in that moment, in the sort of crisis moment, that's exactly where your 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 muscle memory went to, right? Yep. So interesting. Exactly. Now, let's also talk about, I think you mentioned earlier, but on a go-around, when you're coming in with full flaps or great, let's call it greater than lift flaps, so even if you're not at full, you come in at greater than lift flaps, when you push the power in and make and decide you're going to make that go-around, it's pretty important to get those flaps up to your lift setting, but not all the way up, right? Correct. Talk, talk Correct. to us about that go-around procedure a little bit. Well, yeah, what I should have done here was not drop, uh, I say drop to the floor because that bar goes to the floor, mm-hmm. <laughs> not mm-hmm. drop the flaps. It's confusing, but I should have gone to the first notch of settings inside of this airplane. And in fact, a typical takeoff that helps inside of this airplane take off. And that would have been the better configuration for this one. And even in the 172, it's the same thing on the go around. You bring some of the flaps down to around the first notch of flaps or no, 20 degrees flaps. There we go until you have that positive rate of climb. And then you can bring that last notch of flaps in as you're increasing the airspeed. And again, things that I know, but inside of that moment, um, it was more crisis and, oh, the flaps are supposed to be down or up, bam, just do it. And yeah, yeah, you were, you were so worried about that drag, you wanted to get rid of it mm-hmm. and it worked out for you, but you're, you're right. You wanna get rid of the excess drag that flaps bring, but keep the excess lift that they give you in that first Correct. lift setting, usually the first notch of whatever airplane. And I can't think of a single airplane I've flown in GA where you don't do that, where you push it to lift on the go around, you push the flaps to lift flaps and then, and then move on. Mm-hmm. And you want to you want to establish that climb, and you want to establish the right airspeed. It's not enough just to be climbing. You want to get to the right airspeed based on your airframe before you pull the flaps up. That you know that full complete setting to where you go to a clean wing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's an important lesson learned. And just like anything in density altitude, it exacerbates the problem when you're at higher density altitude. And that's what you were finding, right? Is Absolutely. That, I'm sure you felt a pretty good sink. And so initially you're happy. You, you see the speed you want, you're climbing, you pull those flaps all the way up and you get a little bit of a sink until you get the airspeed you want and you're able to climb out. And to be honest, the, the sink for me in this situation was about the sink that I felt when I had to push the nose over every time I heard that stall warning horn. Yeah, It was not very much, thankfully, um, in this situation. Don't know why, because I have played with the flaps and everything in slow flight. And yeah, you, you drop a notch of flaps, you feel it. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit to the setup of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to describe your approach into landing. And you mentioned, I think there's a pretty good crosswind. So how did that get to be a problem for you? Was it just more than you anticipated? Were you receiving some gusts coming out of that or describe that setup for that? So we're coming in on the downwind and we're turning base 
everything's fine, turning to final, everything's fine. And then at about 100 feet off of the ground, things started getting really squirrely. We got pushed off to the right of the runway. Wind got on top of the wing to put us probably at a 45 degree bank with full flaps down. And that's when I decided to go wings level and uh, do my go around. As I'm doing this, I glance over at the windsock and the winds, even though the weather had said four knots variable, was now a quartering tailwind and that windsock was almost straight out. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, in mountainous terrain like that, I have to tell you, I haven't flown a lot in Montana and Idaho. That's just something that you have to be wary of. You know, I'm so suspicious of a sort of limp or just uh, barely moving windsock. It's like, I don't yes. believe you. You're lying to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and it happens, especially in the mountain flying. Um, Sedona, we're especially yeah. cautious of it because you can have different weather and winds between what side of the runway you're on. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. You'll see that in the backcountry quite a bit. They'll have wind socks at either end of the runway, and they'll be showing you two different things. So it's like, Correct. okay, well, pick your poison. Yep. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting that that just is a dynamic of flying in that region of the country where you fly and flying in, in mountainous terrain to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. As much as you can, but you make the logical decision. You're like, whoa, that big gust. I wasn't expecting that tailwind. I wasn't expecting such a strong wind. I'm not going to try to fight this thing. I'm going to go around because I got surprised, right? Which is typically good thinking because in in aviation, really, if you think about all the preparation that we do and the planning and the briefing of the approach and the runway and all that, what we're trying to do is eliminate surprises, we want to minimize the number of surprises that we get hit by in aviation. And the fewer, the safer the flight's going to be. Mm-hmm. So this happens. You come down. All of a sudden, you're surprised with this. Wind direction is stronger. It's a different direction than you were expecting. Hey, no, no, no. I got surprised by this. I'm just going to go around and sort it out, which is good thinking. Yes. It's just the execution of that is where, to the point you were describing, is where you got challenged. And as pilots, most of us we don't like the idea of a go around. Sometimes we feel inferior if we didn't make this landing work on the first try. And so, you know, doing the go around in the proper situation is always the best thing to do. And honestly, I hadn't done one in quite a while. You know, that's interesting because since you hadn't done one in a while, and if all of us were honest, most of us go a fair amount of time without doing a go around, Yes. then that muscle memory isn't there. Correct. So the ways for us to overcome that are one to every now and then do a go around to keep that muscle memory there or to at the very minimum, chair fly it as we're coming in and doing our approach or our airport briefing inbound to say, okay, if I have to go around, here's my five C's, you know, or whatever acronym you mm-hmm. use for a go around. It takes like 30 seconds, but just cheer flying that would would help our muscle memory. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always making sure that I'm BFR current because I take passengers all the time with me, family, friends, and stuff like that. And so when I go and do my VFR currency, I'm doing, you know, doing a sports slip to landing, no flaps landings, short field, soft field takeoff. I just stay at the airport and get my touch and goes in. But again, going back to that whole we don't want to waste necessarily a landing. So why do the go around? Because I want to get these other landings in. And so I've realized in retrospect, I'm doing myself a disservice by not practicing that. Mm, Yeah, I I think all of us can learn from that. 
You know, another point to make here is that back to that surprise issue that we were talking about, I'll bet if I took you out in the Cherokee 140, and this was on the same day of this incident, I bet if I was in the right seat of that and said, hey, Carl, on this landing, I want you to do a go around, you would have had time to think through it and you would have executed a perfect go around because you were expecting it, right? Exactly. And the difference here is you were surprised by it. You made a decision in the moment to make a go mm-hmm. around. And I think it was right decision, I think, because you were surprised by stuff. And the difference in the execution was if I'm sitting in your right seat and say, I want you to do a go around, you're fully, fully planning it, fully expecting it, no stress on the line. Exactly. The scenario is you have to do one for the safety of flight, which you think is best. And it's a decision that's made immediately. So how we can figure out how to train to that is really what I think we're challenged to, right? How do I train between the difference of a known go-around? Same thing if you go up either CFI and he says, hey, we're going to go through some stalls. You'll do great, right? Yeah, you know they're coming. Yeah, and we have over and over again, we see pilots that stall it unintentionally and don't because there's that startle of that surprise factor. So somehow we've got to close that gap in, in our training. And I think a lot of it just has to do with that sudden amount of adrenaline that just hits you because things are happening. You don't know why. And you're kind of in this panic state. And to be able to fall back on that train, or let's just say you have altitude to manage this. It's not that big a deal. And that's where why we're practicing these things inside of safe situations at higher altitudes and you know give forewarning for that. If you fly with me as an instructor, 100% guaranteed I will do that. <laughs> I, will, I will give you, and I do it with my dad all the time. My dad's 83. I still give him his, uh, his flight reviews uh, frequently. And he, now it's where he knows it's coming. I'll wait till he is just about in the flare, full flap on a Navion, and have him go a full configured, full flap go around 10 feet off of landing. Why? Because I'm the instructor. I know what's coming. So I know to be prepared for the potential mistakes. But I want to try to put him through that startle factor. And, and that's probably good. But, you know, the counterside to that is if he's by himself and that happens, there's no backup. Oh, yeah. Plus, you can't really simulate that on your own, right? You, I mean, it's, hard. it's just harder to do because you yeah. know it's coming. You can't, you, can't, you can't simulate that startle factor, right? Yeah. If when you become a CFI, and I can tell just watching your channel and your excitement behind your voice, I, I, I hope you will. Um, I try to set up that scenario where I give them a go around in their airplane at the worst possible time to do a go around, which on most airplanes is fully configured right before they touch down, maybe ten feet or so from touching down, and they'll they have to work it, and that's that's what you're after as a CFI. Yeah. No, that, that's absolutely true. Well, this has been a great story. I'm so glad it ended successfully. And I'm so thankful, really, Carl, that you just kept after it. You know, you kept, you kept that Bob Hoover adage that you just kept flying the airplane. Yes. You kept going back to say, what am I missing? What am I missing? Something's wrong. And you finally caught it. And uh, I'm glad you were persistent and you stayed with it. Now, I do have one more takeaway from it. Yeah, after all of this happened and we're climbing out, I realized I am not capable right now of coming back and landing this plane. Not because I was incapable, but because I was so frazzled. The adrenaline mm. was still pumping and I didn't want to make another mistake. 
And so mm-hmm. that day, instead of going and landing at Pace and having breakfast with my kids, I decided to fly home. And my, my kids were very upset. <laughs> Dad, why aren't we going back to Pace and having breakfast? And I just said, hey, that landing didn't go quite like I expected it to. And I'm a little frazzled from it. So we're just going to go back and land and I will take you kids to IHOP. And then we had cheers. Yay. <laughs> but um, I think that that right there in aeronautical decision making was the best move I could have made at that time. And we did. We flew home, had a good solid 30 minutes, 40 minutes to be able to think about the things that happened, had a beautiful, perfect greaser on the runway. And we parked the airplane <laughs> and and went to breakfast. And so I'm happy, though, that I didn't go around and try to make it work again inside of that state. Could I have done it? Probably, especially if I needed to. But I didn't want to at that moment. I wanted to make sure I was prepared and safe before the next landing. Yeah, I, I think that's a good call on your part. And nobody knows your mental state better than you. Mm-hmm. And so to say, you know what? Mm, nope, uh, I'm just going to back up here a little bit and go back. And another thing to bring up here is your children probably never had any idea of how stressed that was, right? They had no clue. Yeah. What did they tell their mother when they got home? Yeah, we were really close to the ground. When can we go back? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad it ended successfully, obviously, and and Carl, thankful for the way you just kept after it. Uh, Your persistence paid off, and Mm -hmm. thanks for sharing your story with us. No problem. It was fun. Carl's story illustrates in general aviation how even a pretty typical benign flight can get exciting if we forget some of our procedures. And in his case, good decision to go around. He got surprised by the winds. Go around is a good call in that scenario. He just didn't execute the go around properly and had a lot of lessons learned that came out of that that we can all take away. So we're thankful that he stayed with it, finally figured it out and was able to climb out successfully. Carl, thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.